You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There's so many shitty things going on in the world right now that you think the shitty people of the world would look at the news and realize that they don't have to go to any extra effort at this moment to make this shitty world any fucking shittier. And they could take their shitty feet off the fucking shitty gas. But no, there's a new study that came out last week in the Columbia Journal of Gender and Law by Alexander Brodsky that doesn't document a new shitty thing, but new dimensions of an old shitty thing. They're calling it stealthing now. They used to call it taking the condom off during sex without telling the person that you're fucking. Now it has a name, and not just a name, of course, but online communities where shitty people who are engaged in this deeply shitty practice can find each other and then normalize that practice. They have created a community where this is okay, where men gather to talk about how taking the condom off during sex without their partner's consent, which instantly transforms what had been a consensual sexual experience into a non-consensual sexual experience, and therefore assault and rape, uh, is their right as men, because they are, as men, supposed to splatter their seed here, there, and everywhere they care to. And so if a woman or a man requires you to put a condom on to have intercourse with them, just put the condom on and then halfway through, remove the condom. There are women who are going to rape crisis centers uh, because they don't know where else to turn. Women who have been stealthed and they've used phrases like rape adjacent to describe the experience when actually it's pretty much just rape, rapey, what's being done to them. I would encourage people to read up on this a little bit. Google stealthing and the stories about Brodsky's report in the Columbia Journal of Gender and Law will pop right up, including some interviews with Brodsky. It's all really interesting stuff and people should be aware of what's going on, particularly in these online communities where shitty people gather to normalize being shitty people. I just wanted to share a tip from the bad old days, from the HIV AIDS crisis era, the 19, I came out in 1981. I was getting my ass fucked all through the AIDS crisis years during the AIDS epidemic. And we had a move that we incorporated into anal sex with condoms that I would like to gift to everyone out there who is a little concerned about this, about someone quote unquote, attempting to stealth on them, getting stealthened, or I'm not sure how to conjugate this shitty verb, but a gift. I just want to give you this technique. And it was awkward at first when we incorporated this into anal intercourse with new partners, but you got better at it. And then it became second nature. And it became one of those things that your body just did without really thinking about it. And it wasn't a distraction, which was to check that the condom was still there and still whole while you were getting your hole pounded by the person wearing that goddamn condom. That doesn't mean stop the sex and turn on all the lights and get out a flashlight and inspect the dick and inspect the condom and then get back into position and start fucking again. Here's the move. You're getting fucked. It's somebody new. And you're worried that they may remove the condom. For as long as people have been wearing condoms, there have been shitty people out there taking them off. You slip your hand down there and you feel the dick is going to pull out and then go back in. And all you do is every once in a while, your hand glides down in between your legs, down to your hole. That dick is coming out. You can feel the condom. You can feel a condom on a dick. You can feel the bottom of the condom to make sure the condom is still on. 
And what we were checking for and what I believe I was checking for with the people that I was having sex with was to make sure that the condom hadn't broken because 1987, a broken condom, particularly if you had an HIV positive boyfriend, was potentially life altering, tacking toward life ending at that time. So we took this business of condom checks really seriously. And it sounds like something you can't do without kind of ruining the sex. People talk about condoms like having to pause to put the condom on, throws you out of the moment. And then they imagine having to pause to check that the condom is still on or whole. That would really throw you out of the moment. And it's not true. If you can incorporate this move, if you do it often enough, it indeed becomes second nature and you don't really have to think about it. Your hand drifts down, you feel the condom still there. You allow them to keep going. If your hand drifts down and there is no condom there, you jump. You get off that person or you get that person off you. Hopefully, it was innocent. Sometimes condoms do slip off. That can happen. Sometimes condoms break. And one of the things we have to do when we have sex with strangers, not just strangers, sometimes people that you're in a relationship with will pull this move too, but someone you don't know well, someone you may never see again, may not feel that they have to treat you like someone who matters. So to protect ourselves in those circumstances, we spot checked all through it, spot checked all through it to make sure that that did not happen, that a condom didn't break, that a condom didn't slip off, or that a shitty asshole pulling a shitty move didn't pull it off. So I'm not saying that it is the responsibility of the person getting fucked to keep the condom on. It is not the responsibility, shouldn't be the responsibility of the person getting fucked to police the person doing the fucking. It just might be in your own best interests as the person being fucked to do a little policing. Policing you shouldn't have to do. But the kind of policing that this study indicates in these online communities of assholes clearly indicate that more of us should, unfortunately, take on ourselves. In happier news, Rachel Bloom, the creator and star of CW's terrific musical comedy sitcom Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, comes on the show to answer some of your questions and give a little sex advice with me later. But first up, your cue, my A. Then Rachel Bloom. I'm so excited she's here. I am such a fan of Rachel's and her show, and we got her on the podcast. Hey, Dan. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. I love your show so much. Um, Anyway, my question has to do with privacy. Basically, I'm 24 and my brother is 34. The last time he dated anyone or at least anyone he told me and our mom about was in college about 13 years ago for him uh, when he dated a girl for two years or a year or two years. Uh, To say the least, my mother and I are worried about him. We're worried partly because we want him to live a full life filled with love and we think a romantic partner can play a role in that but mainly we're worried because he refuses to talk about his romantic or personal life with us at all. We're a pretty close family relationship, but whenever the subject of partners comes up, my brother gets extremely uncomfortable, clams up, and sometimes physically leaves the room. He has said he wants kids, but at this point, uh, this doesn't seem likely. My mother and I would be expecting if he's gay, bi, asexual, or whatever, but we just feel like as a 34-year-old man, he should be able to talk about his personal life even if vaguely with us, friends, a counselor, honestly, whoever. Um, in his void of communication, we're worried something is wrong. My mother's tried to bring this up like a billion times, but he always deflects and says he has a right to privacy. Um, so my question is, should our mom and I respect my brother's privacy and let him live the solitary life he chooses, or should we take more action? I don't know what action 
or more action than the actions you've already taken, you could possibly take in this circumstance. You can't stage a shotgun wedding where you force your brother to marry some random woman who would like to marry him or who has a shotgun pointed at her as well. You got to butt the fuck out. You got to respect his right to privacy. He does not owe you or your mother or anyone an explanation for why he isn't dating or choosing to be single despite the fact that he might want kids. He doesn't say he'd like to have a partner and unless he's whining to you guys and constantly complaining and bemoaning his fate and being a single man at his age, which would open him up to you know being drawn out on the subject and having a conversation with you guys about the subject and then because he's constantly complaining to you about the subject, he would owe you some explanation and unpacking that subject with you since you guys have to sit there and listen to him whine and complain. If he's not doing that, he doesn't owe you an explanation. You're not allowed to draw him out. He has said, respect my right to privacy, and now it is your job to back the fuck off, you and mom. You don't have to be miserable on his behalf. And you know what? You don't have to project misery onto his state. It's entirely possible that he is not miserable. Lots of people are living alone. Lots of people are choosing not to get married. And sometimes these people feel obligated with family and friends to act as if they are unhappy about this because people who are contentedly single can be made to feel somehow damaged or broken because everybody's supposed to want a partner and everyone's supposed to want love in their life. And not everybody does want a partner or does want love in their life, but they don't want their friends and family to think they're the kind of sicko, broken person who wouldn't want love or a partner in their life. So they pretend that they might like that or they let their parents and their siblings think that there's something missing from their life because they don't have that. But at a certain point, and I think 34 is well past that point, you have to let your brother make his own choices and you have to butt the fuck out. He's asked you to butt the fuck out. That's what respect my privacy means. It means butt the fuck out. So it is now your job and I'm putting you under orders to butt the fuck out. Respect his right to privacy and stop trying as his sister to micromanage his personal life and stop projecting your wants and desires onto him. His wants and desires or fears may be very different than yours. But the fuck out. Hi, Dan. My friend and I are both 22-year-olds, straight females living in the Southwest. We volunteer together at an after-school program for teens and are close with many of the kids there because of because we, we are relatively close in age and have some similar interests. We follow many of the students on social media and two days ago one of the boys started asking my friend and I sexual questions over Snapchat. If he were asking questions about the mechanics of sex and safety and that kind of thing, we would have been happy to answer, but he was asking us about us and our masturbation techniques. For example, do you have a vibrator? How do you use it? Does it feel good? And was essentially using our comments to get off. At first, we didn't respond at all, but after several of these questions, we told him to stop because it's inappropriate, and we could both get in a lot of trouble because he's only 15. We tried to tell him to watch porn, but he said he doesn't get off from it, but he's really frustrated because he is horny all the time. We care about him and want to help, but we have no idea how. Boundaries. That's how you help this kid. That's how you demonstrate to him that you, unlike some other people perhaps in his life, actually care about him by having clear and appropriate boundaries and establishing those boundaries. And you almost did when you said, this isn't appropriate, this conversation, we're not going to have this conversation with you. You shouldn't be asking these kinds of questions. And then he pivoted to, I need this to get off. I'm 15 and porn doesn't do it for me. And now you feel obligated somehow to help him get off because porn doesn't work for him, that he has created by making this statement, some obligation on your part to come through for him with some tips on 
getting off for the 15-year-old boy. This 15-year-old boy need help getting off. Some tips to help him get off because pornography doesn't work for him and you don't want to have a conversation with him about vibrators and how you masturbate and what your technique looks like. No, you don't owe him anything. He can get out there in the big wide world and figure out other forms of mental stimulation that will work for him. And you are not required to come through with those on his behalf. In fact, it will not serve him well. You will not be helping him. You will not be demonstrating to him that you care about him by even attempting to provide him with other forms or suggestions about other ways he might fantasize or be aroused or turned on in order to help him blow his 15-year-old loads because that will be creating for him not clearly defined boundaries and ideas about what is and isn't appropriate but porous and messy boundaries. And it will be putting in his head that when someone says, no, this isn't appropriate, that he doesn't need to back the fuck off and go the fuck away and stop, that he needs to come back at that person with a request or a question. He needs to make another attempt at scaling those walls. And you that's not good. No, 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 no. Shut this fucking down. And he can whine and then you shut that fucking down. Until it stops and he gets out there in the big wide world and finds other things to jack off about besides the two of you. Hi, Dan. I'm uh, in my early 30s and I live in Jerusalem in Israel. And Jerusalem definitely, definitely has a gay scene for sure. But it's also full of Orthodox religious men and they do not act like the uh, trendy, hip guys that are in Tel Aviv who are holding hands in the street, and they're even living with uh, their husbands and adopting kids. The Orthodox men here, they don't know how to flirt, or they don't know how to meet men the way that we did in America, where you meet a guy doing some volunteer work, or at a bar, or at a sports club, or at work, or going to the gym. And what's happening to me, and I don't know what to do, what's happening is I'll be walking down the street, and I'll see an Orthodox guy, like, he'll see me, and he'll keep looking at me, And then he continues to sort of covertly follow me and, you know, sort of like stalking, but not in a creepy way. I mean, at least I don't think it's creepy. I think it's fun and exciting. And the other day I was on my cell phone, uh, just hanging out outside of a coffee shop and some guy just took one look at me and decided he liked what he saw. And he just sort of hung around And I guess he was hoping that I would get off my cell phone and talk to him. And in both of these instances, it just reminds me of how the U.S. was in the 90s. You know, you couldn't meet guys through means like at the gym or volunteering at the Gay and Lesbian Center. You met them in parks and whatnot. And I, I just, I don't know what to do each time because each time I, I kind of would love to meet them, sure. But I mean, am I just supposed to turn my ass around and walk up to them and say, Hey, I noticed you looking at me. Well, I'm interested in you too. 
I mean, that's odd. What did you do when you were like living in the U.S. and it was in like the 90s and guys didn't quite know how to flirt via conventional means? It was all very covert. Like, what's the language that I use? What do I do? I, I also don't want to scare them off. Cause I feel like if I come up and I'm a big gay out self, they'll flip out. So what do I do in this situation? I really want to meet them. First, I think you've confused the 1990s in the United States with the 1950s or 1940s in the United States. You could meet people through non-furtive means, even before dating apps came along, people went to bars. There were gay neighborhoods. There were sort of gay restaurants. You walked down the street. You could actually flirt with people, and I did, and I saw others doing it at the gym. This was a thing that happened in the 1990s. It wasn't this furtive secret society of sideways glances, and although there was some of that too, people called it cruising, and now people just cruise their apps. But your impression of gay life way, way, way back in the dark ages of the 1990s in the United States is just completely off. Those of us who were there, those of us who managed to non-furtively find partners back then uh, can attest to just how off your assessment of that era is. Okay. You can walk up to one of these guys and say, hi, I'm not sure why you would want to because bundled, I think, with the – orthodox lifestyle that they're trying to adhere to is a lot of shame around homosexuality. And as anyone who's ever messed around with a deeply closeted, deeply conflicted religious person, be they a Mormon, be they an evangelical pastor, be they an ultra orthodox Jewish person who hasn't escaped they're not really good experiences. The guys aren't really very emotionally available. They don't really feel good about what they're doing with you. And so they don't feel good about you and they will project their anger and shame onto you. There's a lot of resentment that someone in that circumstance has for the person that they're fucking or being fucked by or the dick that they're sucking and the guy who's sucking their dick. They will tell themselves, oh, I wouldn't be doing this gay thing. Why do these gay guys keep sucking my dick? As in the famous Onion headline, why do these gay guys keep sucking my dick? It's so awful. It's not fun to be on the receiving end of that kind of desire mixed with resentment, which is what you're very likely to get from one of these guys. So I would encourage you rather than cruising and going up to and talking to uh, an orthodox guy to find guys who've left orthodoxism if orthodox guys kind of turn your crank or to run off with guys who aren't mixed up in an archaic religious cult in my opinion i would run screaming if i were your shoes now of course there are some guys out there there are some gay guys out there who get off on sleeping with the deeply conflicted closeted shame-drenched dude, be they the evangelical pastor, the devout Mormon, the Catholic priest, the Orthodox Jews. Some guys like that energy. Some guys even like the contempt and the post-orgasmic regret. They like that moment when the guy comes and the shame just pours over them. I don't know why anyone would like that. I don't like that. I want to be in the room with that. I don't even want to know if that's going on. If you're one of the guys who likes that, then you could go for it. But I promise you, Half the guys that you walk up to who cruised you are going to deny that they did it. 
and blow up at you. They looked because they liked what they saw, but you walking up to them and confronting them about it, basically making them own that moment. A lot of guys who are deeply religious and deeply conflicted and gay and closeted, sometimes even to themselves, they may not realize what their eyes are doing, are not going to welcome your attentions. They're going to blow the fuck up and scream and yell at you. Something else you'll be on the receiving end of if you pursue these guys. So I think you shouldn't pursue these guys. And I wouldn't if I were you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old man living in the Northeast, and my wife and I decided to open our relationship about a year ago because both of us had very little sexual experience outside of each other, me especially, but a fetish of mine is now threatening to destroy my entire marriage. So my wife insisted when we started that we would seek out separate experiences. She was uncomfortable with the idea of threesomes and foursomes. I didn't want her to change her mind about the whole thing, so I agreed. The open relationship has been life-changing for her. She has really come into her own sexually in the last year, and it also helped her become more social where she used to be content pretty much staying in every night. She's had lots of success having sex with lots of guys and having a couple of regular fuck buddies. With her most frequent fuck buddy, she tells me pretty much every detail, takes pictures and video of her with him, and I've absolutely loved it. But she still wanted some separation between me and her relationship with this fuck buddy. I've never met him or talked with him. For whatever reason, I got pretty obsessed with it. Although I would say I was pretty 90% involved with how much she shared with me, it still wasn't enough to me. It's possible I got obsessed with it because I was not having much success on my end of the open relationship. This is where I really fucked up. I went on her phone, read her text messages with him, went on her computer, and then the most egregious thing, I put an audio recorder in our bedside table on a day I knew she was going to be fooling around with him via Skype. She found the recorder and subsequently found out all the other violations of her privacy. She's someone who very much values her privacy, and this was crossing a line that I might not be able to come back from. This is where I need your help. I have a history of enjoying voyeurism. Uh, I got in trouble with it back in college, and I lost good friends because of it. I tried spying on my wife when she was just my girlfriend, and the relationship almost ended then. In the last 11 years since I was first caught, I've probably attempted to spy on someone between 10 and 15 times. She is now giving me one last shot to save our marriage. She is mandating that I seek out some sort of treatment once a week. Uh, I feel really ashamed that I never truly considered how invasive and disrespectful this fetish is until my wife threatened to leave me. I truly want to change now and treat this. I'm going to therapy, but my wife says it's not enough. We were also attempting to find the right couples counselor. We went to one who was super judgy about our open relationships. So we're still working on that. Um, I've gone to a few sexaholics anonymous meetings, but I, I don't feel like I fit in there. This isn't something I seek out constantly, and I'm Nowhere near a chronic masturbator, nor do I watch porn that often, but she still thinks I could do more. Oh, and she also wants to keep the relationship open because besides this, it's been one of the most exciting and positive things in her life lately. So here are my questions. Can you recommend any books or some other material I could read or watch or some other supplemental form of treatment that might help me put this unacceptable fetish behind me? And also, what do you think about the state of our open relationship? Voyeurism is at once creepy and common. There are a lot of voyeurs out there. Studies put the percentage of the population that is interested in voyeurism or who have experienced or practiced voyeurism anywhere between like 7, 10, 20, even 50%. And there are voyeurs of opportunity. You're walking down the street past an apartment building and some people are fucking that apartment building and you can hear it. You stop and listen. Or you're walking by and they can be seen and you stop and take a look and congratulations, you are committing an act of voyeurism and you are now a voyeur. What you're doing though is a little compulsive and a little fucked up. Taping your wife without her knowledge, including taping her boyfriend without his knowledge, in many states recording people without their consent is a crime on top of the crime that voyeurism itself can be. 
some places, some people have wound up on sex offender registries in some states after they were convicted of voyeurism. People feel violated by that kind of sexual activity. That said, if you're asking for my help in eradicating this kink, what book you can read that will rip this out of your brain, you're shit out of luck. Everybody acknowledges now that kinks can only be dealt with, managed, channeled. They can't be eradicated. You can't reach into someone's erotic imagination and just pull out a couple of wires and cure them of their paraphilia. You have to roll with your paraphilia. There are people out there who want to own people, right, who are very turned on by master-slave dynamics. You don't get to own people. You only get to pretend to own someone, right? You are a voyeur. You like to spy. That was your word for it. You don't get to do that. You may lose your wife. You may fuck your marriage up irrevocably. You may wind up with your ass divorced for having done that. So you don't get to do that anymore. And you don't get to do that to anybody else because of the risks you run for yourself in doing that. What if you did get busted outside someone's window and arrested and wound up charged with a sex crime and then wound up on a sex offender registry, which is a kind of social and political death in this country? That isn't something that you can allow to happen to yourself or your marriage. You got to stop. The way to stop, though, is not to build a dam behind which this desire builds up until the dam breaks and you act out impulsively on these desires. You have to find a safety release valve. You have to have a floodgate that allows you to indulge in this kink without violating your wife, her boyfriend, strangers, or anyone else. Go to sex clubs. Join a sex club where people have sex in public and you can look to your heart's content Construct for yourself consensual fantasy scenarios where someone who would like, who someone who's an exhibitionist would like to be seen. There are people out there who are exhibitionists who like to be looked at, who would welcome your voyeuristic attention, and you can arrange through the blessing that is the internet for kinksters. You can arrange to be outside their house at a certain time to watch them fuck, and they can get the thrill of exhibiting themselves as the exhibitionists they are to a voyeur who is consenting to being so exposed to their bodies and their fucking. You can channel this in healthy and constructive and consensual ways. That's how you get out of this corner into which you painted yourself. That's how you solve this problem. The problem isn't spying really. It isn't even voyeurism. The problem is consent and the lack of consent and violation of consent. You are free to spy on people who would like to be spied on. You are free to listen to people fucking who would like to be overheard fucking. You are free to watch people fuck who would like to be watched fucking or are fucking in a place and at a time where they don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, like at a sex club or a swingers club. So good luck to you. Get out there. Find a kink positive Open relationship positive counselor, not just an open relationship positive counselor. You already had some trouble there, but you also want a kink positive counselor. You want a counselor who isn't so stupid as to believe that words or drugs or anything else will cure you of your kink. You have to ride your kink, channel your kink into consensual expression. You violated your wife's consent. You should continue to apologize to her for that for a very long time. Now get out there and find people who would like you to see or hear what they're up to and explore this and indulge this and have this in a consensual way.
Hi, Dan. Um, long-time listener, first-time caller, 32-year-old bi lady in the Northeast. About two years ago, I was in Vegas with my family and little cousin's birthday, and I met a guy. I met this really cute guy. He's a GGG, very cool, very smart tech consultant, not you know, not sort of a dick. He like used to play the cross, but and he does CrossFit, but he's not like one of those hokey CrossFit is all kind of guys. He's very cool. But we started talking, you know, just like a fling in Vegas, but he happened to be in New York the next week. So I went up to visit him and we had a really nice weekend. It was great. Um, And we started talking, but he went back to California where he's from and I was going to visit him, but he started dating someone. Life happens. It's fine. Fast forward two years later, and he has moved to Australia, broken up with the girl he was seeing, and he starts texting me again. And we're sort of texting and dirty texting, and it's great, and it's fun. And he's surprised going to be in town in a month. And my dilemma is this. When I met him two years ago, I was training to have a boxing match and I was in really amazing shape. As you might imagine, I was really cut and just physically um, fit. And he's, you know, commented, you know, and like to text on my body and stuff. But in the two year interim, I'm an attorney. I changed jobs. I had to drive an hour Um, commute for the new job and the combination of no longer biking to work every day and going to flight training, but driving an hour of work and stopping that training um, has resulted in me gaining about 10 to 15 pounds. So I don't look the same as he remembers. So I'm wondering, I mean, I'm going to do my best to get in better shape um, in the months that I have, but I'm wondering when I see him, do I say something about it? Do I just ignore it? I think it's going to be fairly obvious that I don't <clears throat> look exactly the same way as I did. I'm still in good shape. I mean, I still run and work out and stuff, but I obviously shouldn't mention it beforehand, I guess. I mean, that would be awkward. Hey, I gained, you know, 10 pounds. I don't look the same. Don't expect the same thing. Ha ha. I, I don't see that going well. So I, I just, should I gloss over it? I, I don't know. If you'd gained 30 or 40 or 50 or 150 pounds, you might want to give this guy a heads up. So as to spare yourself the pain of rejection or some look in his eye when he takes you in at the airport and sees that you are twice the woman that you used to be. But 10 pounds? You don't have to disclose 10 pounds. And I don't think you have to disclose 150 pounds. I think it would be in your own interest to disclose that, to spare yourself a painful rejection that may come your way or may not. But 10 pounds? You were in training then for some boxing competition or whatever it was, and now you're not, and you have 10 extra pounds on your body? No, that's not something you need to send up a flare about. And if that's something that he has a terribly negative reaction to, and I don't think it is, and it certainly shouldn't be, then you tell him to get the fuck out of your apartment and let him know he can find somewhere else to stay while he's visiting. Hi, Dan. My close friend had a nervous breakdown the other day. The The caveat to this is this is the second one that she's had that's quote-unquote a manic attack. Um, I grew up with a bipolar mom who would just go off 
and say crazy things and scare people and disappear. And my friend's fiance called me this past week and told me that she had done the same thing. She calls me crazily telling with a, with a weird affectation uh, to her voice talking about whether or not she should marry this guy and um, that he doesn't love himself enough for her to marry him. And this, again, is the second time this has happened. Um, This happened about this time last year, actually. So my response to her was that she needed to get her shit together, that she, she really can't keep doing this to her fiance, who's an incredible dude. He just adores her so much. They've been friends for years. And all he wants is to make sure that she feels okay. My question is, well, my problem rather is that I'm, I'm just kind of over her at this point. Um, we, we've done everything. We've done the counseling and the meds and the yoga and after a while she starts to feel better and she goes off and off the meds. And I'm, I'm, I I just can't, I can't deal with it anymore. Um, my own family is in crisis. My own mother just got out of the hospital from ODing. Two of my sisters are in prison with their kids floating out into the ether and possibly having me to take over the custody of their kids. I am the maid of honor in this girl's wedding who just had a breakdown and, and, and I, I can't deal with it. I have lost all respect for her and, and I know I'm being a little insensitive and I know this is all being triggered by my childhood trauma with my mom, but I, I don't want to be the maid of honor. I don't want to go to the wedding. I don't, I don't even want to deal with this girl anymore. And I would just love to hear if, if, if that's okay, or if, or if I'm being an asshole, and, and if I'm being an asshole, what I can do to maybe stop being such an asshole? Your mother is nuts. Your sisters are in prison. You have nieces and nephews who you may have to take in to keep out of the foster care system, and props to you if you do that. That is hero's work. You're allowed to say to your friend, my psychic emotional bandwidth here has been exceeded by my own dramas and my own family's problems. And I can't be there for you the way I have in the past. And you can say to her fiance, we need to round up a, a new support system for her. I can't be the first person that you turn to or she turns to during a crisis like this because I have a, I have the Hindenburg and the Titanic and 9-11 going on in my life right now. And I don't have the space or time for her, I can't be the friend or the support system that she needs right now because I am the support system for all these other people in my life right now. And I am tapped out. You're allowed to say that. And sometimes, okay, maybe that is kind of an asshole thing to say, but sometimes you have to be an asshole in your own self-defense and you're allowed to be a bit brusque and forthright with your friend about what you can do for her right now. It's also okay sometimes to look at a friendship and say, this isn't a a friendship where there's mutual affection, good times, uh, pleasure, and then some mutual support uh, that goes back and forth when one or the other of us is having a a crisis during which we need some friends to come through for us. This is just a take and take and take and take situation where withdrawals are constantly being made and no investments are being made. 
put into the friendship bank. And you're allowed to look at that and say, you know what? That friendship kind of went bankrupt and it wasn't really a friendship anymore. I was a support group or an unpaid therapist. And you're allowed to look at a relationship like that and say, I don't have the, again, bandwidth in my life or in my brain or emotionally for this anymore. The only thing I would quibble with you about is saying you've lost all respect for your friend because she had this breakdown. If she has a mental illness, if she had some sort of psychotic break or episode, that's not something she chose. That's brain chemistry. So it's not about respect. We don't look at people who are having these kinds of problems in their lives and think, oh, they fucked up. This is happening to them. It's not something they're choosing. I'm sure your friend wouldn't choose this any more than your sisters would choose to be in prison or your mother would choose to suffer from whatever it is your mother suffers from. So pull that out of your commentary and, and pull that out of your thinking. It's not about respect. It's about time and crisis management. And right now you don't have the time to help her manage her crisis because you have so many crises of your own. I think the friend thing to do on the way out, if you're going to end a relationship or pull away the fuck back is make sure that that person has other people in their lives who can come through for them and to abandon someone who has no one. But this friend has someone, this friend has a fucking fiance and he should be her first line of defense. He should be her first and most important support system. And he should be out there lining up others to be supportive of her. As to the wedding, I think it's possible to do both. I think it's possible to pare back your obligations and commitment here while also showing up at her wedding. You can say to her, look, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be your maid of honor. But right now, that's all I can be. My mother is nuts. My sisters are in prison. I am taking in my nieces and nephews. I am tapped out. But I will be there on that day. And then maybe one day when I'm on my feet and my life and my family situation is a lot less chaotic and you're on your feet because you've gotten the help that you need, which here's your fiance now husband who's going to help you get that help. We can circle back and, and, and reconnect. But right now I need – kind of need to clear the decks for my nieces and nephews, my sisters, my mom, my drama. And I don't have room for your drama or anyone else's drama right now because – the Hindenburg crashed into the Titanic and the Twin Towers all at once for me. And I'm out. You're allowed to say that. Some people will think that's the asshole thing to say, but sometimes you got to let people think you're an asshole and take care of yourself. And again, your nieces and nephews. Hello, Dan. I've enjoyed reading your column in the early 2000s when I was living in San Francisco. I'm 52, living now in Seattle with my wife, 43. We've been married about five years and we get along very well except for the minor domestic spats about dishes and clutter and all that sort of stuff. But what I wanted to do is ask you a question about how do I approach my wife or handle the situation about my decreased sexual attraction from my wife because of her increased weight gain. Uh, my wife had gained 40 pounds more than I when I first met her. Uh, she was curvy at the time, but this extra weight is really affecting my ability to find her sexually attractive in, in many ways. Um, one, she has less confidence about her body, which in or out of her clothes. Uh, I'm, I'm turned off by the rolls of fat or flabby arms or jiggliness during sex, and it's affecting me, and I I don't know what to do. Uh, I used to be able to pick her up in bed. Uh, now I can't, and <laughs> my ego is kind of taking a hit, and I know how superficial that sounds. Uh, things I've tried, 
uh, intricate hikes, joining CrossFit, uh, cook healthy breakfasts uh, together. I try to create a positive, healthy environment. Uh, the problem is this, that I really can't support her when she's binge snacking or stress eating uh, when I'm in or out of town. And I really don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> if I walk into the office and I see that she has, she's eaten a whole large bag of chips and has eaten, uh, she'll glare at me guilty and then will attack me if I say anything. So I, I feel like I should just shut up and I don't really know what to do. I mean, I've even tried frequently masturbating to BBW porn just to see if I can change my attraction levels, and it really hasn't worked. So just wondering if maybe you could help me on, on what I can do or say or approach this weight gain issue to increase my you know, sexual attractiveness to my wife. When you marry someone, you're signing up for the long term, and one of the things that happens over the long term is that bodies change, time as a way of shredding us all. So the onus is on you as the husband to try to wrap your head around these changes and accept them. I feel for you though, and I may get in trouble for saying this, it's one thing for the natural processes of time to change our bodies. And I think people can roll with that and accept that and they should. And that's part of loving another human being. It's a different thing when someone accelerates the pace of that change in such a way that it demonstrates perhaps a, a disregard for how you feel about them and for sex or whatever else is important to you in your relationship. And you make changes or start making different choices that speeds up that process of change that the person signed up for. It communicates kind of disregard, maybe in contempt for your feelings, for the partner's feelings. And that's where you are right now. Sounds like you haven't been able to have constructive conversations with your wife about this. Maybe the conversation you need to have with your wife, if she's eating differently now and in such a way that it's, she's gained 40 pounds and it might be negatively impacting her health at this stage. Maybe it's not about eating and maybe it's not about sex. There's maybe some other underlying issues, something else that she's unhappy about. And the, the food, you say she's binge eating for comfort. The food is giving her comfort that she's not getting elsewhere, maybe not getting from you, maybe not getting from her work life, maybe that there's something else going on. And instead of addressing diet and your dick, you need to address these other issues, whatever they might be, with your wife in a constructive way where you set aside sex and you set aside the body type that you prefer and the activities you miss like being able to throw around in bed and talk about whatever else might be going on perhaps with a couple's counselor. It's possible also that your wife may be done with sex or done with you and sex. And the fact that you're no longer attracted to her is not a bug, but a feature of the new choices she's making around diet and exercise. Maybe she's struggled all her life to maintain her body size 40 pounds ago and it was an unpleasant ordeal for her. And she's now eating in the way that she always wanted to eat and would rather have that, the, the food that she's eating now and the way she's eating now, than have sex with you or have you be attracted to her. In which case, maybe you're tiptoeing into open relationship territory. Maybe you're tiptoeing into doing whatever you need to do to stay married and stay sane and seeking sex elsewhere. But I think the key here may be a conversation with your wife that doesn't center, as the kids say on the college campuses, your dick or her size, but centers her happiness because if she's eating compulsively because she's unhappy, 
don't address the eating, address the unhappiness with a couple's counselor. It may be again that these 40 pounds are here to stay. Even if you can address the unhappiness, even if there's a way out, even if there's something that can be done could be though, that if you address that unhappiness, the diet will change and she may eat differently. And there may be the change that you want to see, but your wife five years in, uh, in into her late forties is never going to be the person she was five years ago. You're not the person you were five years ago. You don't mention your size. You don't mention your diet. You don't mention whether you've maintained. Maybe you have. And I actually do think that that's something people owe their partners. When you sign up for a long-term commitment, when you marry someone, they don't have to never change. People evolve, people grow, people change. But I think one of the ways you express to your partner, your commitment to them and your concern for their feelings is basic maintenance of your physical self, good personal hygiene for starters and maintaining a a healthy diet and a healthy exercise routine. So you're in good working order. That doesn't mean you have to be shredded. Not everyone has to be a size zero or a, a male Adonis. But one of the ways we demonstrate to our partners that we care about them is by taking care of them, but also taking care of ourselves and your wife from your description may not be taking care of herself, which brings us back to there's something going on, perhaps something that makes her unhappy. Maybe it's you something that makes her unhappy and the eating is a secondary issue and her unhappiness may be the primary issue. Address that. Try addressing that. Hi, Dan. I just found out that basically I got out of a long-term relationship and haven't seen this guy that I met on Tinder for like two months. And I understand we're obviously not exclusive, but I just found out that he has a girlfriend and has had one since we started talking. I found out via Instagram. Um, I don't have Instagram. He does. So I guess maybe he thought that I would never find out. <sighs> and now I just feel like, shit basically um we had a conversation recently i said when was your last long-term relationship he said last year but only lasted a few months the last post from her was from like a week ago so this is obviously something that's still going on i don't know it just makes me feel like i can't trust anybody i'm pretty bummed out this like he just seems like a nice guy i'm just confused like like how can you even tell anymore Joining us by phone to help answer this question, Rachel Bloom, co-creator, writer, and Golden Globe-winning star of CW Network's hit musical comedy drama series, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Rachel plays Rebecca, a slightly unhinged lawyer who abandons New York City, which I would never do, and moves to California, which I would never do, to woo Josh, who I would like to woo, her first love from summer camp. Hey, Rachel. Hi. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited. This is my favorite podcast. Oh, thank you for saying that. No, you spend a lot of time uh, talking about your show and yourself when you do media and other people's podcasts, talking about your amazing and talented self and your great show, but not today. Okay. Today you're on my show and we're going to talk about my callers and their problems. And I think you're going to be great because your show is all about relationships and sex and it's smart and it's nuanced about relationships and sex. So I'm sure you can... Give great sex advice. Really, any idiot can do it. If I've been doing it for a quarter of a century, you can too. I will try my best. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So this woman dating a guy from Tinder, they've been talking. It doesn't, I don't, doesn't, didn't get the impression they've had many face-to-face interactions, or if any at all. He's got a girlfriend. What should she do? 
Yeah, that was my question is how much has she talked face to face to this guy? Because, I mean, he sounds like a real asshole. Um, I mean, he sounds, you know, not like the most upfront guy. And if if someone is really important to you, theoretically, you are going to meet them face to face. And generally, when someone's skeevy, I don't know, I like to think, I like to hope you, you get a sense of that. So, but if she'd just been talking to him on Tinder, then then who knows? But as far as telling his girlfriend, it doesn't sound like the relationship's advanced enough to insert oneself into that. And then also, as you say all the time, you don't know what agreement people have with their significant others. I mean, they could have an agreement that he's allowed to go on Tinder and flirt and it gets him off. So, And it may be, that may be all he did was get on Tinder and flirt and lie. He also lied. But they didn't actually meet up. They didn't have sex. They haven't gone on dates. He was flirting and lying, but flirting and lying. And should she bust him? Yeah, no, I just don't think that it's, it just depends how much they've met up, right? Because if, if they've met up and gone on dates and had sex, then that's a different, a different issue. But if he is just flirting on Tinder, giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he has an agreement with his girlfriend that he's allowed, you know, she's like, okay, I'm cool if you go on Tinder and flirt with people and you're not going to get anywhere flirting with people and saying, I have a current girlfriend. You have to lead people into thinking you're sick single, which that's like the one shitty thing, even giving Mm. him the benefit of the doubt is wasting people's time. If you're not actually single. Fakes and flakes drive people crazy. Right. So I don't know if it were me, I wouldn't, I just would, I would just kind of wash my hands of the whole thing and run away. Lock him and move on. But what if it were you and you'd been having sex with this guy for three months who told you he didn't have a girlfriend that you met on Tinder. And then you found out he did have a girlfriend because you decided to look at his Instagram account for the first time. Well, first I confront him and mm-hmm. be like, what the fuck? And if he doesn't come clean or he keeps lying, then I might tell her. But I think it all depends on what he says when you talk to him. Yeah, I never know what to advise people about this. This impulse to, you know, be the righteous one and out the lying cheat is understandable. But it's so mixed with a desire for vengeance that it's hard to feel pure about it or like you're actually on the moral high ground that you think you're on as you burst into someone else's relationship and potentially upend it. Yeah, we've been thinking about because without going into spoilers, we ended my show last season with this kind of vengeancy kick. And so we've been thinking about the idea of vengeance and revenge a lot in the past couple of days as we've gotten back in the writer's room. And it's always interesting because I am someone who's had quite a lot of revenge fantasies. I'm someone who will kind of keep my mouth shut and then be like, oh, if I'd only said that thing that I wanted to say. And it's a very short-term want. When you actually think about the long-term effects of getting revenge, it begins to get unpleasant. So if you were to tell this guy's girlfriend, you basically are the messenger that causes their breakup, and you're now part of their story. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. And if it's someone you've been talking to just on Tinder, I don't, I don't know if that's something you want to get into. Does not rise to the level of potential relationship impeachment. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 24-year-old female from Toronto. I have been in a relationship with my boyfriend for three years now, and he's a very straight man. I love his ass. I love looking at it, touching it, grabbing and squeezing it, and especially licking it. He does enjoy it very much when I eat his ass while giving him a blowjob and a handjob, and it's extremely enjoyable for me. 
I have fantasized about pegging him, but he doesn't like the idea. He's open to me putting a finger in his ass, and I have tried doing that. But every time I get very scared of hurting him, so we end up we ended up not doing it at all. Um, and I've asked him if he has ever put a finger in his own ass, and he has never done that. So I was thinking maybe a butt plug would be a good idea. He is not thrilled about putting a butt plug in his ass while we play, but he really wants to be GGG for me. My question is, should we do this, knowing that he's not very into the idea? Also, is it okay to insert a butt plug into an ass that has never been penetrated, or should we start with the finger? And if we were to use the butt plug, should I put the butt plug in, or should he do it? Okay, Rachel, welcome to the deep end of the Savage Lovecast pool. <laughs> well, first, I know how weird guy, and I and I I'm maybe wrongfully assuming that her her boyfriend identifies as you know heterosexual, and and I know how weird heterosexual guys can be about. Wait, wait, wait. I think we can climb out on that limb without risking by erasure. I think a guy who's terrified of having a finger near his butt. <laughs> Most likely is not a bi guy. And if he is, that's, I think, a kind of bi erasure a lot of bisexuals would support because they wouldn't want him counted amongst them. Some bisexual guy who's terrified of his girlfriend's finger. Okay, good. I'm glad. I just, you never know. You never know. Um, But what I was saying was a lot of my friends are are heterosexual men, and they're really weird about their butts and stuff up their butts and stuff around their butts. Um, A lot of it comes from, you know, that, I guess, kind of like panic of like, I don't want something up there. That's not what it's for. But also, and maybe it's just because a lot of my friends are Jews who have stomach problems. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of shame around things going around their butt because of, you know, poop issues. And they're just like, why would you even want to take part in this? It's, it's a horrible hell zone. So anyway, but they all want to fuck their girlfriends in the ass, right? It's a horrible oh, hell zone. Mine is a horrible oh, hell zone. Yours is a place I'd like to visit. Yes. Oh, yeah. If the woman's the woman's ass is fine. And if the woman says, like, no, my butt's gross, they're like, whatever. I don't care. Give me that ass. So, yes, it's a total double standard. But I, so I, first of all, I commend him for she's eating out his ass, which is already a huge step for heterosexual men everywhere, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's unclear. Is So she's like, she doesn't want to hurt him. So has she tried just like lubing up a finger and trying to put it in his ass? It was unclear what steps they've taken. They seem pretty tentative. And, or she seems pretty t- – for someone who's eating an ass, she seems pretty tentative about the finger. And for someone in his case who's having his ass eaten, he seems pretty tentative about a finger. I have to say though as a, a, a gay person that it's not just straight guys who have this hang up. Like a quarter of all gay guys have never have anal sex. Don't get into anal sex. There are gay guys out there who don't want their asses touched or played with. But they're – uh, a small and despised minority. Just kidding, gay guys who don't like their asses touched. We love you. You're a part of our community. Um, but speaking for guys who do like their ass touched, a finger, and I don't know what how much experience you've had or what you want to reveal, a finger doesn't feel very good. Fingers are bony and weird, and a finger in your butt is not like a finger in your twat. It doesn't feel nice. It feels awkward and and bony and weird. And a butt plug, a toy, a tongue, a dick, that feels good in your ass. In my experience my vast experience a finger does not feel good oh that's really interesting you're telling me things i actually don't don't know because you would i would think that like oh a finger is a nice gateway drug into <laughs> later getting a butt plug but that's really interesting i mean I, in my own experiences of having things in my butt 
Yeah, I get. I guess a finger. I don't know. I don't have enough enough butt experience, but I'm gonna go with your experience on this. That a finger doesn't feel good, but but that's like the thing is the thing. What I'll say about a finger is you're already eating out his ass. It's organic to be like, hey, I'm gonna try to slip one of these guys in. Whereas like with a butt plug, it's like, okay, tonight is the butt plug night. Are you ready? <laughs> For butt plug time, I went and I bought this. It's shaped like a what? dolphin. A lava lamp. You know, like a lava lamp. It's a whole like it's a whole thing, whereas like a finger can be more of an an off the cuff organic decision in the moment. Mm-hmm. Let's pause for a second to, to to just jump back to why some guys are afraid of having their butts touched. And yeah. there are a lot of guys out there who think that well, well, A, like they don't want to be penetrated. They think that it's weak or or, or feminine to be penetrated and that might shatter their self-conception in some way or destabilize it in a way that's not fun and transgressive that's just ooky and transgressive but also there are a lot of guys out there who think that gayness is induced by butt play that it, there's a of switch you can flip in your ass that turns you gay and depending on right. how old your boyfriend is and how many gay guys he knows he's likelier to believe that if he's young and doesn't know any gay guys that gayness is that there's a button in your ass and it, you can go nuclear and be a fag tomorrow by pushing that button in your ass. And it's just not true. It's funny. I think, I think, and this is in general, like any sort of oral stimulation, like eating out an asshole is, is so, I think that's a step beyond putting like a finger in someone's ass. I think that's a lot more intimate, actually. I do too. I would agree. But, but I guess if you are the dude, and, and, a, and a lot of guys I know who, who aren't really interested in having stuff done to their butts, it's... The twofold, it's the butt shame. It's like my butt is a gross area. That's not what it's for. I don't want to make a girl do that. But also it's that for them, sex is, because, you know, sex is like power and they like being the dominant ones during sex and being penetrated feels like then the other person's in power. And that just literally doesn't turn them on. I think you hit something hit on something though a minute ago when you said there's something about the intentionality of going and getting the butt plug that may be scary because most analingus during oral I think with straight couples happens accidentally like you're yeah. licking the balls you're licking the taint and then you're like oh my god I touched the butthole and they moaned and freaked out and repositioned themselves for more of that and the analingus just kind of breaks out it just sort of happens accidentally organically whereas there's nothing organic about toddling on down to the sex toy shop and buying yourself a quality silicone butt plug and then heading home with enough lube to jam that into your boyfriend's ass. That's intentional. You can't look at that and say, well, it just kind of happened in the heat of the moment. We just got carried away. Like, no, you did that. You wanted that to happen. And maybe that's the the bar your boyfriend's caller is having a hard time clearing. Not just, oh, you're licking my ass because things were hot and we got swept up, but oh, you're shoving something in my ass because you wanted to, I wanted to, and we made plans for this kind of D-Day invasion of my butthole. It feels very, very formal. And then, I mean, I've had this experience with just personal sex toys I bought where it's like, if I don't like it, I'm like, well, there's $40 down the drain. I can't give this to anyone. I can't give it away. I can't return it. Well, guess I just wasted money on this. Well, it's a lovely, it doesn't even stay on. A lovely paperweight, an, uh, an object to art for your coffee know. table. See, now you say that. Oh, I cleaned out my drawer already. You can oh, re-gift man. it to someone you don't like very much. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but, but in it, I'm actually curious. So like, it's fine to put a butt plug in someone's butt before, if you've never put a finger in, it's okay. You don't have to like warm them up with a finger. You can just put the plug in. Yeah. I mean, depending on how big the plug is, if you get one of those traffic cone sized butt plugs, right. you might want to, 
work your way up to that. But there are butt plugs that are about as thin as a finger, which aren't very good because they fly out of your ass. They actually don't fulfill the plug function of a butt plug because, you know, that flared center of the butt plug, the, the like lava lamp widest section before it narrows before the base the sphincter grips around that wide section and the base and holds the plug in your ass. And straight guys, if you're listening, that places pressure on your prostate. And when you have an orgasm and those orgasmic contractions begin, your sphincters grip and release and grip and release. And it gently moves the butt plug. It doesn't start fucking you. It's not like the butt plug turns into some like nine inch cock. It doesn't start pounding you, but it gently presses against your uh, prostate as you're coming. And it is amazing and you should be able to get there because the butt plug ain't a dick doesn't look like a dick looks like a lava lamp as i always like to say and uh yeah you can do that without ever having been fingered got it so if you're gonna try butt plug stuff it and and you don't like the way it feels when it first enters you should give it a shot because your prostate's a couple inches up right Yes. And there's a moment where your ass sort of sucks the plug in the rest of the way, where your sphincters slide down the bottom of the flared part of the widest section of a lava lamp before it grips around the narrow part before the base. (laughs) And there's this point where kind of like your ass sucks it up. And for a lot of guys, that's a surprising moment. That's a take your breath away. Even for guys who are very experienced with uh, butt stuff and butt play and toys and plugs and dicks, that moment where the plug slides home – can knock your knock the wind out of you for a second in a good way. Doesn't kill you. I'm learning so much. I think there might be a song in this for the next season that you're working I think on. They're really, I think they're really maybe an online only song, but I'm just <laughs> my mind is my mind is expanding like a sphincter around the lava lamp part of a butt plug. Hi Dan. I'm a thirty seven year old woman living in Seattle. Um I have a four year old son and a husband We've been together about nine years, and um, I'm just kind of tripping out on myself a little bit. I went to a comedy show the other day with a girlfriend, and there was a an attractive, you know, 40-something comic man, and I found myself looking at his penis, and or like through his pants, and I leaned over to my friend, and I was like, look, you can see his bulge, and she's like, what? And I'm like, well, you can see his bulge. And she's like, oh, and kind of looked back. And uh, and I was like, sorry, I think I'm objectifying him. And, you know, thought about it for a couple of minutes and then didn't think about it again. And then the other night I went out with my husband and my cousin, who is a gay woman. And we went and saw this band. It was all women. And the women were gorgeous. And I found myself talking to my cousin about these women in kind of an objectifying way. I didn't really think too much about it until today. It doesn't feel right because if I put myself in those people's shoes, I would feel really uncomfortable. So I guess my question is, you know, is this wrong? What are your thoughts about women objectifying men or women objectifying women? Rachel, you're a performer. You're on television. Sometimes you're on television uh, in your underwear. That uh, Getting Ready song. I- I'm botching the name. The-, 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 the song that you did in, I think, the first season. singing. Yeah, yeah. Sexy Getting-, Getting Ready song. Sexy Getting Ready song, which is genius. And if you haven't, listeners, if you haven't uh, seen it, uh, and if you're not yet watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, watch. But at least get on YouTube and watch Sexy Getting Ready song, which is fucking hilarious. 
But you're the performer. You're looked at. You put yourself out there. Is it okay if the viewers objectify you to some small extent? Yeah. I mean, I think it goes beyond performing. First of all, if I know male comics and you said like, sorry, I was just like staring at your dick while you were doing your comedy. That's why they got into comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Nine nine out of 10 of them were like, well, this is how I'm going to get girls to like me. And so like nine out of 10 male comics are going to be thrilled. However, you know, I guess it, it goes beyond that with, you know, should I feel guilty when I objectify anyone? And I think, and this is something we explore on the show, but we're animals. You can't help. If you see a guy's bulge of a dick and you like dicks, you can't help but stare at it. I, and I think that the difference between us and all the other animals is what we choose to do with our instincts and that information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people, people are kept being catcalled at, on the street feels horrible. Right. And the reason it does is because it invades your personal privacy. No one is saying, how dare you look at me and involuntarily, uh, you know, want to fuck me or uh, like uh, my tits. It's, uh, it's unless it tips over it. into ogling, which we all, that's one of those things that's hard to define. Like pornography, you know, it when you see it ogling, you know, it when you're on the receiving end of it. And True. sometimes you ogle without realizing that you've ogled and you have to write yourself. If that person gives you the stink eye, you're like, oh shit, I need to up my checking people out game so it's subtler because I ogled. And you don't want to ogle because right. that makes people feel uncomfortable and unsafe walking down the street, in their own skin, on the bus, at school, at work, whatever. But everybody objectifies. Everybody checks out other people. And that's part of our hard wiring. And if you're going to feel guilty and terrible about that, don't leave the house ever. Turn off the TV. Yeah, and you said to your friend, look at that guy's dick. It's different than it, – it's all, it's all contextual. Like if you turned – to the person next to you in the theater who you didn't know and was like, check out that guy's dick. That's diff. That's also different. That's, that's what are you doing with your instincts? Yeah. That's something my um, husband would do. Don't do that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'd probably become friends with that person just because that's <laughs> weird and hilarious uh, to do. But I remember on, this is so, of course I would say this, on NPR a couple of years ago, there was I like your this, NPR voice. I like how you shifted on seamlessly NP, well, into your NPR voice. On NPR, voice. a couple of years ago, and NPR a couple of years ago, I remember hearing a story um, by a trans woman, and she was talking about her when she started. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry, I heard a story by a trans man. Apologies, and he was talking about when he started taking testosterone, mm-hmm. and instantly he would see women, right? He would see women on the bus, on the street and have an involuntary, almost like picture of fucking them. Mm -hmm. And, and it, and it, and they, he had never experienced this before he started taking testosterone. And the day I heard that I was hanging out with my friends, a lot of whom are dudes. And I said, guys, when you see a hot girl, do you, involuntarily picture fucking her and they all looked down and they were like, yeah, we, we do. And I, I was like, what, what do you mean? And they were like, well, it's, and some of them were like, it's almost like a snippet of a dream or it's mm-hmm. almost like an involuntary picture flash. You just, you just for a second picture fucking her in the shower. And that's not their fault. That's it's what they choose to do with that, that, you know, separates us from the animals, but that's not their fault. I'd like to say um, that I'm a much better person than your friends because when I see a hot woman on the street, I do not have that problem. I do not <laughs> flash on those mental images. You are a true gentleman. <laughs> that dude, that woman's hot brother on the street, though, is in danger. Sure, sure. All of the things. <laughs>
the, the, the paradox here, though, is not just that we objectify, but a lot of us, I think to some extent, maybe all of us at different times would like to be objectified. We are also objects. We are also things moving through space. We are, we are physical. And we want to be desired by the people we would like to be desired by. And we would like that desire to be expressed to us in a way that doesn't make us feel unsafe or only objects, that we are also objects, but not just objects. So, you know, I think to the caller, I would say, did you like the comedy? Was the comedian funny? Did you check out his dick and think nice dick and good comedian and obviously a human being? Uh, Then it's not a problem. Same thing with the band. It's fine to objectify people so long as there's some part of your non-reptile brain that's constantly reminding you that people aren't just objects. Yes, I was. Yes. The fact that she called in and is concerned about it. It's like if you think you're crazy, you're if you think you're mentally ill, you're probably, you know, you're on the right track. Like people who are (laughs) truly people who are really, really mentally ill think there's nothing wrong with them. And the same thing where if you're saying, oh my gosh, I'm objectifying someone, you're actually probably not because you're thinking about it. Like the awareness already puts you on a different level than people who actually objectify other people and don't see the humanity and empathize with them as other life forms. Okay. Before we let you go, can you give us all the really important plot points of the upcoming season of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Yes. Okay. All the spoilers. Just let them rip. So Josh dies. What? Um, he dies. No! Just like, first scene, he dies. He goes to heaven. In a tragic rimming accident, Josh dies. In a, tra- <laughs> In a tragic rimming accident. That's how people, yeah. whenever they ask me how I want to go, like, if you could choose the way you die, how do you want to go? I always say tragic rimming accident. That sounds horrifying, though. And I'd like to see that happen on television. And, tra- and I'd like to see that happen to the actor who plays Josh, who's really fucking foxy. <laughs> I'm going to tell him that. <laughs> we'll find that amusing. <laughs> Any others? One more spoiler for us? Yeah. Oh, like you want a fake joke spoiler or like something real? Give us one real thing. I think the preview, Josh dying in the first episode of the new sure. season, I'm sure is fake. So give us one real teaser. Well, here's what I'll say is it's all we, when we pitched the show, it was a four season show and it's very specifically a four season show because every season is kind of like another side of the prism of the blanket stereotypical term crazy ex-girlfriend. And we left off last season um, with a big turn with her now seeking vengeance. And I think that is, you know, what this start of the season at least is going to be about. And it's something we've never been able to do on the show. And in some ways, when you think of the title crazy ex-girlfriend, that's what you think of Mm -hmm. the kind of revengey, sexy, stocky part of it. So that's what we're, your character's always been pretty fucking stocky. Yeah, but not openly. She's always kind of veiled it in either, you know, plausible deniability mm-hmm. or immediately then offered sex or whatever. <laughs> um, but the threatening, the the actual in her mind, she's like, I am now I am now the stock I am now the scorned woman who's going to seek vengeance. And I think that the show is Rebecca's story, but it's also the stories Rebecca tells herself Mm. and it's what story she thinks she's in and going into this season, she now thinks she's Glenn Close. I can't wait. It's such a terrific show as both a sex and relationship person, but also a musical comedy fan. It is spectacular and uh, I've really enjoyed watching uh, 
all three seasons so far, and I can't wait for the fourth. And thank you, and I can't wait to see what you do next, and I hope you get to do another musical on television. People tried in the past. Remember Cop Rock? People tried to do musicals on television, and nobody was able to make it work until you. Oh, well, I well, there have been others, but that that thank you so much. That Gle- means I'm so sorry, much wait. to me. And- Glee does not count. <laughs> I don't no, know what others you're referring to, but Glee doesn't Flight count. Flight of the Concords, oh, right. Gallivant, the Garfunkel and Oates show. Which was great. I love Garfunkel um, and Oates. Yes. Uh, the Bo Burnham at a show. I stand corrected. Uh, yeah, there have been, there have been others, but 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 thank you, and I will pass it on to Elaine. And I've told you this before, but your podcast has been extremely influential to me in the way that I see sex and relationships, and um, it was it really allowed me when I got married to go into my marriage voluntarily. I'm basically voluntarily in a monogamous relationship rather than that being just the default that I never thought about. That's great that you opted in, which is I think what people should do. I'm not an enemy of monogamous commitments or monogamous relationships or marriages, but I think it should always be thoughtful and opt in and not default. So that's what lovely of you to say. And I'm so happy to hear that. It's your podcast has truly made me a better person. So, and I am hundred percent sincere, but thank you. That means so much to me that you like my show. Thank you. And get back to the writer's room and keep making the show for us. Okay. I will. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am calling today with a business-related question. So I work in housing, um, and it's a uh, housing complex that caters to a lot of students. And recently, I had an interesting thing arise with one of my residents. They had been emailing me on and off for about two months uh, about how they were frustrated with their neighbors because either very late at night or very early in the morning, their neighbors have loud sex, and it's been very disruptive to him and his studies. So I told the resident that I couldn't really proceed without knowing which room it was coming from so that if he ever found out specifically who was making the noise, I could then have a conversation with those residents about maybe cooling it. Um, So this weekend, he sends me an email uh, with not only the room number that these noises are coming from, but also two three-minute clips of audio of his neighbors having sex. So it seems to me I have to have two conversations. One is a conversation with the residents who are having sex saying, hey, um, all about sex positivity, but your noise is kind of disruptive to your neighbors because it's probably not just this guy, even if he's the only one complaining because it was loud. I imagine a lot of people are hearing it too. Um, And I want to do that in a way that is respectful, that is sex positive, that isn't you know, trying to come down on them for having sex and enjoying sex, but at the same time, they do live in an apartment community. I also need to have a conversation with the guy who recorded them, because that seems a little skeevy that he recorded them having sex and then sent it to my business email. I wasn't totally cool with that. So two awkward conversations. Um, And I've already talked to my supervisor. We've worked out an action plan. I think I know what I'm going to say. But I love your show, and I was curious how a sex advice expert would handle both of these awkward conversations. So let's hear it, Dan. What would you do? People have a right to have sex in their apartments or their rooms or their dorm rooms. And you can, as Gary Coleman, the character sings in Avenue Q's, you can be as loud as the hell you want. You can be as loud as the hell you want when you're making love and people kind of have to deal neighbors should be neighborly neighbors should be considerate if they're having sex for 2.5 hours and it's 2.5 hours of screaming that's not very considerate that's not anything the neighbors should have to put up with but if they're having sex for 
an hour or 30 minutes, and they get noisy in the last few, which is far more typical. That's usually what happens. There's a couple of minutes of caterwauling, and then it's over. That's something that a considerate neighbor puts up with. You don't have a right to live in an apartment, but you don't have a right to live in a house. You don't have a right to live on a planet with almost 8 billion other humans and never overhear those other humans fucking. Humans fuck. Humans make noise when they fuck. We are social animals who clump up many of us into cities and you are going to overhear some of that fucking. I think the person complaining is the unreasonable one. If they believe they have a right to live in that building without ever overhearing anybody else having sex noise, they have some right to live in this shared and communal space without ever having the fact that other people are having sex put into their heads by the sounds of other people having sex. That's unreasonable. If, however, these tapes that he made went on for 2.5 hours of caterwauling or fisting or flogging or whatever the fuck they were doing – and it was noisy for 2.5 hours, that's an asshole fucking move. That's not neighborly. That's not considerate. And they are then the unreasonable fuckers who need to dial it back or or they need to drive off into the countryside and find an abandoned barn to have sex in in the middle of the night and not the apartment. You do need to point out to the person who made the tapes that, as I mentioned earlier on today's show, it is in many jurisdictions illegal to tape people without their consent and without their knowledge. That includes this kind of shit, taping people who are having sex and making noises as people do when they have sex without their knowledge. He could have, by creating that tape, committed a crime. And you might want to Google that wherever it is that you live. Check the statutes where you are. And if that's the case, warn him. Delete this. You will delete it. And he should never do this again because it is criminal. And out of consideration for his feelings and to avoid prosecution, you're not going to mention the tapes to the folks that you're going to go confront about how noisy they are when they have sex. Hi, Dan. I uh, was just listening to episode 548 in the car and I had to pull over when I heard the woman's story about the massage therapist who assaulted her. I'm a licensed massage therapist and I was just fuming listening to that story and I wanted to apologize to her and I wanted to thank you for the advice that you gave her and I wanted to add something to it because each state, if this guy indeed is a licensed massage therapist, each state has attached to their licensing bureau an office that fields complaints. Sometimes it's called the Office of Professional Discipline, sometimes it's called the Office of Professionalism, but please, please file a complaint against this idiot and let them yank his license. And if he isn't a a licensed massage therapist, Dan is absolutely right. You've got to file a police report because if he has done this to you, he's done this to someone else and he will continue to do this to people in the future. I'm so sorry he did this to you. And Dan, thank you for the advice that you gave her. It is, it is my sincere hope that after you have healed, that you will find another massage therapist that you can put your trust back into. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm responding to the caller on episode 548 uh, with the uh, the girl that has a fuck buddy that she was kind of upset with. And I think the thing to say is uh, people in a fuck buddy relationship are basically in a non-monogamous relationship, but without really the tools to be able to manage that. So in the swinger world, it's it's really common for you know people to you know be around other people that they either have fucked or want to fuck, but are you know handsy with somebody else. So I think the key here is that you just got to be able to communicate, right? And it's, and it's not too difficult to just, you know, communicate, Hey, I want to fuck this person tonight, but 
I know I'm going to see you again in the future. So like, let's hook up again another time. I mean, that should be a fairly easy thing to understand, but the guy needed to communicate better. So it's just, you got a couple of young kids that just don't know how to communicate these things, but maybe they just talk it out. They'll be able to patch things up. Hey, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. This is a comment for the guy who has the girlfriend who wants him to follow methods to uh, reduce his drive until she figures out hers. That That's me uh, 20 years later. Great kids and everything for you know making that the price of admission to stick around. I'm on antidepressants, which are known to decrease libido and working out 90 minutes a day to completely exhaust myself to cut all those things. I'm here from the future. Don't keep doing this. Find somebody you're compatible with. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Go to itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com and get some ITMFA t-shirts, hats, buttons, tasteful lapel pins, and we will send all the proceeds, every single cent, to the ACLU Planned Parenthood and the International Refugee Assistance Project. ITMFA, where it's really fun. People will see your ITMFA t-shirt, ask you what that means, and you get to say, it means impeach the motherfucker already. I live for those moments. I wear the t-shirts all the time. I have a lot of those moments at the grade, especially on airplanes. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Rachel Bloom on Twitter at Rachel Does Stuff. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 